The book of Ruth is well-loved by many. It's a gem of a little book that I'm really looking forward to working our way through together. It has lots of fun plot twists and very interesting characters. I've mentioned to a few of you that Ruth was actually the very first book that I ever preached through uh, when we began the church in California. And I went back and I looked at some of those sermons, and I think they're just going to stay in the file. So uh, <laughs> we're, we're going to start over. <laughs> a lot of people love Ruth because it reminds them of a romantic comedy. Uh, lots of kind of odd twists and turns. But, you know, in modern romantic comedies, you've heard this term, meet cute, meet cute. Uh, The two characters meet early in the film, usually, and then something happens to interrupt their romance, their budding romance, and they go off and maybe they're mad at one another or they pursue other love interests until finally, at the crescendo of the film, they're brought back together and the curtain drops and everyone lives happily ever after. Well, this book of romance doesn't begin in quite the same way. It begins with heartache and loss. The story begins with tragedy, and it doesn't appear in these early verses like there's any answer to the hardship that Naomi and Ruth face. We read in verse 1 that this story is set back in the days when the judges ruled in Israel. What were those days like? What were the days like when the judges ruled in Israel? Well, if you have your Bibles, and it's always a good idea to bring a Bible to church, uh, turn back one page or scroll up to Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In verse 1 of Ruth, we read that in the days when the judges ruled, folks, that's not just a time stamp to locate this book in history. Our narrator is making a theological point. Despite being delivered from slavery in Egypt, despite being led by Moses through the wilderness where God showed up for Israel again and again and again in their moment of need, despite the conquest of Canaan where entire cities fell before them, Despite eating from crops and orchards that they did not plant, living in houses that they did not build, despite all of the blessings of God, despite the law of God that he gave Israel to help them know what his will was for them, the people of God did what was right in their own eyes. The book of Judges tells the story of how God came to Israel's rescue over and over again. And yet, instead of responding in repentance and faith, it seems like every time God came to Israel's rescue, Israel just fell off even greater into greater and greater sin. It's a sad downward spiral of disobedience until finally Israel is no better off than the pagan nations that surround it. And so God unleashed a covenant curse against Israel. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, 
there was a famine in the land. Now, wait a minute, Eric. Are you telling me that natural disasters are judgments of God against the people, the inhabitants of those particular lands? No, I don't think that we can say that generally. I don't think that we can pinpoint where the tornado touched down as a particularly sinful house or city. I don't think that we can say that where the hurricane hits that God is trying to make a theological point. But when we're talking about Israel, we're talking about a people and a nation and a place to which God made certain promises and from which God expected certain obedience. And he said, if you obey me, here is this long list of blessings that you will enjoy as my people. But if you disobey me, here are the long list of curses that will afflict you. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 22 through 24, hear what the Lord says. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and fever, inflammation and fiery heat, with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. A covenant curse for God's covenant people because they failed to keep covenant with God. That curse drives Naomi's family out of the promised land. But this isn't just any old family, is it? Look again at the end of verse 1. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Well, first capture the irony that the man from Bethlehem, which means house of bread, is having to leave the promised land to go find bread to find his family, or to feed his family. But then also remember that Bethlehem is a name, a place that is pregnant with meaning for the people of Israel. After Ruth is told after this becomes part of the Hebrew canon, any time that someone would have heard this verse, their ears would have perked up because they would have known that this ultimately is a story about David. Oh, King David, he was from Bethlehem. We know that this is no ordinary family. We know that God is up to something here. In verse 2, we read that the name of the man was Elimelech. Now, I told you that there are some interesting characters, some interesting plot twists. Well, there's also interesting twists with the way that the Hebrew language is used in the book of Ruth, and we see that partly in these names, not just the place name of Bethlehem, but even the individual names that we find here. Elimelech, his name means, my God is king. When is this story written down? In the days of the judges, when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Elimelech is leaving the promised land, which is never a good idea. This is like the horror films when someone goes in down into the basement. Don't do that! Don't go down there! Don't leave the promised land, okay? 
And yet he has left the promised land, proving that he is not being faithful to his own name's meaning. The name of his wife is Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet, and that's going to play a role in the story as we go on. His two sons are Malon and Kilion. Malon means sickly. Kilion means failing. Not a healthy family. (laughs) Probably not very strong kids. Maybe even a reason that Elimelech feels pressure to leave the promised land, to go find bread for a family in crisis. So they go to Moab, and at this point, everyone should be tearing their hair out with frustration. Moab? That's like an Aggie living in Austin. That's like a Longhorn moving to College Station. Why are you going to Moab? The Moabites were Israel's enemies. Some of you remember the story of Moab. Moab, That people descended from an incestuous relationship of Lot with his oldest daughter. Remember Abraham's nephew Lot. Moab has already loomed large in the Bible story in Numbers chapter 22. The king of Moab hires a prophet by the name of Balaam to curse Israel as they are in their wilderness wandering. In Numbers chapter 25, the women of Moab seduce the Israelite men into sexual immorality and idol worship so that God comes against Israel in judgment and kills 24,000 Israelite men because of their sin. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, anyone who has any connection to Moab down through the 10th generation is forbidden from ever entering into the tabernacle or temple of the Lord. And Israel is forbidden from ever enacting any kind of peace treaty with them. They are enemies forever. Judges chapter 3, the time that this book is written of Ruth, we read that the king of Moab even persecuted Israel, controlled Israel as a puppet state until God raised up a judge to free Israel from Moab. Why in the world are you moving to Moab? Of all of the places that you should go, why Moab? What a terrible decision. What a tragedy. But then it got worse. Elimelech died. And then it got worse. Malon and Kilion ended up marrying Moabite women. And then it got worse. Malon and Kilion died. And now Naomi is alone. She's alone in a foreign land with two daughters-in-law, but no heirs, no grandchildren, no grandson. And friends, in that culture, if you had no heir, if you were an elderly woman all by yourself with no prospects of getting married again, that meant that your life was in danger. That meant that your future was in question because no one would take care of you. You would have to depend on the kindness of your family. But where is Naomi at? She's in a foreign land. We begin this new sermon series in Ruth 
I want to do what I have not seen many people do. And I just want to stop there. I want to stop and let us sit with the tragedy that begins this story. We live in a fallen world. That means that none of us are immune to hardship and tragedy and suffering. And sometimes when we skip over a text like this and we run to the good part of the story, we begin to tell ourselves a lie. And that lie is that God doesn't care about our tragedy. God doesn't care about our suffering. God doesn't care about our hardship. In fact, I've got to get through this as quickly as I possibly can to get to the good news. Friends, every single one of us has been touched by tragedy in our lives. We could go around the room this morning and hear about the death of a child or the unfaithfulness of a spouse, the scariness of a crippling disease, the fear that a loss of a job brings into a family. I mean, think for a second. Fill in the blank. Where have you found yourself scared and frustrated and angry with God and maybe even at night crying out, what are you doing to me? Why am I going through this and where are you? Why aren't you coming to my rescue? Sometimes in the midst of a tragedy, we we believe a kind of prosperity gospel that says, you know, I'm going through a hard time right now, but My breakthrough is just around the corner. What if it isn't? What if instead of waiting for better days, God is calling you to walk through 10 years of hard days? It's not just famine and fleeing the land of promise. That's hard enough. But then you also have to suffer the death of your spouse. It's not just the death of your spouse. You also have to watch as your sons marry outside the faith. And it's not just the bad marriages. Then you have to watch as your two sons die. What if instead of looking for the silver lining? God is calling you to trust that he is with you, that he is at work in you and he is at work for you in the darkness. Naomi isn't a model saint for us in this way. Again, if you have your Bibles, we didn't print this portion, but in verse 13 of Ruth chapter 1, she blames God for her circumstances She says, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. In verse 20, after she gets back to Bethlehem, she changes her name from Naomi, which you remember means sweet or pleasant, to Mara, which means bitterness. And why does she do that? Because she tells the women of the town, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And in verse 21, she concocts an untrue story, a falsehood. And this is how we engage with our suffering too. 
We end up telling ourselves lies about our situation that obscure the truth. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, friends, that's not true, is it? She didn't go away full. She was on the run from famine. She had two sickly boys. She settled in the land of Israel's enemies for 10 years. She didn't go away full, but she blames God for her emptiness. But Eric, why didn't God intervene? Where is he? Why isn't he intervening in my life? Naomi can't see God. Naomi can't see God except as someone who is punishing her and afflicting her. But God is present nonetheless. God's presence can be described as a frowning providence. Providence is one of those important theological words that you need to know. Providence, according to our larger catechism, number 18, is God's holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and their actions to his own glory. Let me read that again. This nice Shakespearean English sometimes gets over our heads. Providence is God's holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and their actions to his own glory. Everybody loves God's providence when things are going well in their lives. Oh, it's such a blessing. The Lord has blessed me so much. We ascribe all kinds of blessings to God. And we hope that God's providence, his ordering of our lives and our actions, we hope that that's always going to be happy, that it's always going to be pleasant. But friends, God's providence sometimes includes hardship and suffering. Sometimes it's because we're dumb and we do dumb things and we bring hardship and suffering onto our own lives. Sometimes it's because we suffer from the hands of sinful people. Sometimes it's because we live in a fallen world that is at odds with its creator and its king. But God's hand, God's timing, God's purpose in our lives is to conform us into the image of his son, to rescue us from our sin, and sometimes he uses suffering to do that work. So what work is God doing here in Ruth? Well, if you know the story, you know that he is providing a redeemer. Ultimately, through Ruth and her husband, Boaz, who she's going to meet, they will have little Obed. How come we don't have little Obeds in the church anymore? And Obed will be the father of Jesse. And Jesse will be the father of David. But this redeemer isn't just for Naomi little Obed, who is her inheritance, her guarantee that her life is safe. It's not even a redeemer for Ruth and Boaz. It's not even just a redeemer for Israel and the good King David. Through the hardship and suffering of Naomi, God is at work 
ultimately to bring Jesus into the world. To live and die in our place, to be raised again for our justification. And what's interesting is that in Jesus' own life, we will see hardship and suffering. In fact, in his suffering on the cross, we see this pattern of God hidden in hardship and suffering. Because there on the cross, Jesus takes to his own lips what we can imagine Naomi saying, what many of us have probably said. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet... Yet in that moment of darkness, in that moment of despair, in that moment of loss, God was most at work to secure you in your redemption. And friends, that means that Jesus, having gone through that pain, can be a sympathetic high priest for you and me. Someone that we can turn to when it feels like the darkness is our only companion. Naomi couldn't see God at work. Not right away. She'll see it later. But I want you to understand that God's work doesn't depend on Naomi seeing it. And God's work in your life doesn't depend on you seeing it either. God is at work even in those places, even in those times and situations that seem barren of possibility. So look at your life this morning. Where are the places of famine in your life? Where are the places of need and emptiness? Can you see God at work? Maybe not. But do you believe that behind his frowning providence, as we'll sing here in a moment, is a smiling face? That he is at work for you and for your good. Friends, when you suffer, make this your profession of faith. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. And that's not fatalism. That's not resignation. That is Christian confidence grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, all of us here this morning have or will go through earth-shattering hardship. And when that happens, I pray that you would recall to mind these opening verses of Ruth, where a woman's life crumbled around her, and yet you were still at work. God, even if we don't have eyes to see you at work in our lives, give us mouths to profess our hope and confidence in Jesus, who passed through death to give us life. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.